Welcome to the Resilience Rising podcast with me, your host, Jen Scottney. With the help of my guests, we will be getting curious about what resilience is, how we develop it and why we need it. This podcast is here to explore all things resilience. I'm really pleased today to have a coach and friend, Jamie Pay, on the podcast. Thank you for joining us, Jamie. Jamie is a life coach, a PhD trainer and coach, having received her own PhD in 2021 from the University of York. She calls herself the messy coach, and I absolutely love that because she is all about working through the messiness, messiness of doing doctoral research, of muddling through life, love, relationships, work, and everything in between. She's originally from Malaysia, but now lives in the north of England, which means, in her own words, she never feels Asian enough and never British enough. She's always trying to lose 10 pounds and has been constantly dealing with injuries and knee and leg pain for about 15 years. So even her life and body feels messy. (laughs) Thank you so much for that, Jamie, and welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) I'm going to dive straight in with my first question that I ask every guest, and that is, what's your definition of resilience? Okay, this is, I've been thinking about this answer, and it's going to be slightly long so the short version of it is um I think true resilience is about a willingness to sit with the messiness and we'll unpack that more through the next hour or so um and what I mean by that really is that I so coming from an academic space in recent years there's a lot of talk around like resilience within an academic like environment. Um, And a lot of people find that quite problematic and not helpful, actually, because how that comes to be interpreted is this sense that, you know, it doesn't matter if the university or your supervisors or whatever are giving you a hard time or, you know, it doesn't matter that there's an inherent problem with the way that academia is set up and the the kind of pressures that are inherent within that world what matters is that you're resilient you know and there's this kind of onus on like just suck up just suck it up and get on with it uh just be resilient this kind of um almost like a quite a capitalist way of of dealing with life this this idea of you know just do it no pain no gain that kind of so just completely suck it up get on with it don't moan don't question don't moan yeah (laughs) um just get on with it you know this this like and this is um it it kind of overlaps with notions of like confidence as well you know just be confident just fake it till you make it um there's issues around motivation that are quite similar as well you know just be motivated just find the motivation and get on and do it um and I know that that's you know that's ultimately not really what resilience is but that's kind of what it's become within the world that I've been in recently um but I think I think that that's uh, a counterproductive way of getting people to a a better feeling place like you can't just go from where you are to just 
to just being resilient, like, um, or just being confident or just getting on with it. And I think to get to that point where you are finding that strength and that resilience to go on, I think first you need to be willing to look at what's actually going on. And this is why, you know, I call myself the messy coach and I'm all about that messiness because I think it's so important to acknowledge what messiness it is that you're dealing with. Like, what is it that is helping you, that is stopping you from being resilient or from being confident or whatever those other good qualities are that we, that we are striving for. Um, so yes, that's, that's my, that's as short as I'm going to be. <laughs> We've got a whole hour to make it longer. So that's absolutely fine. But I love how kind of wide open that definition is. I mean, me and like others that I've spoken to and asked that question of usually frame it quite smaller in this kind of coming back from setbacks, maybe. But in yours, it's just like live with all of it. It's all resilient. Do you see it as being that wide, that all encompassing? Um, yeah, I think so. I think, I think maybe, well, I'm, I'm speaking more from my most immediate example like, or experience of being in academia, that this sense of resilience is like a destination. It's a place that we want to get to like, oh, now I'm resilient or I've just got to be resilient and just get that, that idea of like, just fake it till you make it, you know, just kind of just do it kind of thing. Um, but I think that, you know, sitting with that messiness, um, being, and that's where a lot of healing begins, right? Like looking at the shadow sides of where we are and, and the uncomfortable places, the uncomfortable feelings, um, really kind of looking at what's going on, where the blocks are and clearing that. Like, And that process, I think, I like to think of as being resilient as well, because that's, that's hard work, right? Like yeah. looking at the things that aren't working or the things that don't quite feel right. Um, and I guess going back to your example, where we were talking about kind of what the more unhelpful view of resilience is, is that actually, if you don't want to sit with that vulnerability, that messiness that you've been talking about, I mean, one way that you could do that is just, well, you could be really busy, you can distract yourself in other ways. And actually that on top, you know, that might come across as looking resilient. Being yeah, busy, yeah, absolutely. Like all this stuff is happening, but it's fine because she's turning up to work every day and being really resilient. But <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> are you saying, but, but actually you're saying that that might not be resilience. That's just not dealing with it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's it's outwardly resilient, I guess, because you're just kind of weathering on. Mm. Um, but I feel like that's not a sustainable way of being, you know, like there's that fake it till you make it thing again. But it's it's so, first of all, it's so exhausting to live like that, right? Yeah. Like you've got all this mess going on and you still just have to soldier on and like, put on a brave face and go into work. And I think culturally and in society, doing that is applauded, right? Like that whole kind of just do it philosophy. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I got, um, particularly in the sphere that I used to be in as a lawyer. I mean, it was like, she had a baby and she was back at work the next day. She had, yeah. I mean, like yeah. for me personally, like, you know, literally the day after my dad's funeral, my brother's funeral, I'm back at work, I'm back at my desk. And also that kind of trying to make sure that nobody knows 
that something terrible has happened in my life. Just like really get on with it. And for me, that was the essence of being professional. And it looked really resilient. Like, oh my God, she's so tough. But it, yeah. it just wasn't. I mean, it, what you're right, it wasn't sustainable. And I completely burnt out a few years later. So yeah, I completely understand where you're coming from with that. I really like that you use the word vulnerability just now. And I think, yeah, vulnerability or like the willingness to be vulnerable and to show that vulnerability is that and resilience are two sides of the same coin. I think you can't really do one without the other. Ah, wow. That's like mic drop there. You're saying that you, we can't be resilient without being vulnerable. Yeah, and the vulnerability is is exactly what I've been saying about being willing to sit with that messiness and acknowledge that true discomfort. And because I, I feel that, you know, to just outwardly be resilient is a very kind of surface level thing. Um, and it's almost like a, it's like eggshells, isn't it? You're just waiting for it to crack. <laughs> When all the all the crap on the inside is gonna spill out, and almost like the kind of straw that broke the camel's back, it could be something really minor that really flips me. And actually, yeah. it's not about that minor issue of you know something tiny didn't go right. Um, it's it's been building up with everything else that I've just not been dealing with. Yeah, absolutely. And when we, I, I, I guess when I when I was saying you know resilience and vulnerability are two sides of the same thing, I think to like I think about children and I think about animals or or like I've had dogs my whole life so I think about how you know we always say like children are really resilient or we say like animals are really resilient right like I've had dogs go through like terrible um accidents and illnesses and they're so resilient like they they don't sit around and feel sorry for themselves (laughs) and moan the way that humans do um but I think what it is when you see you see animals and you see children, um, like they they encompass both, right? Like they're acknowledging they don't try and suppress how they're feeling, like especially children. Like if they're if they're feeling upset, they will tell you that they're feeling upset. In, in most in most cases, I guess. Yeah. I mean, we're not talking about kind of extreme situations. Yeah. Um, but then also, I think by them being able to do that, like being fully expressive and being willing to cry and, and show their vulnerability, even though they're not thinking of it as being vulnerability, um, that's what helps them to um, go through whatever it is, whatever little drama that they're going through. And, you know, with kids, they'll be really upset. They'll express that. They'll, you know, really sit with that unhappiness or that discomfort or whatever it is um and then once that's out and they've addressed it and they've they're done with it then they you know in the next hour they could be completely back to completely forget what it was (laughs) yeah yeah and then they're, they're back to being happy again and then I think I think the problem is as adults we're like no 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 you know we can't show that we're upset we can't uh, cry we've got to just soldier on and we pack it down and just we do just soldier on um and is that really resilience I don't know I think I feel like it comes out in some other ways you know whether through physical illness or 
yeah, that, you know, somebody will say one really innocuous thing and then we just explode, <laughs> right? That is not just me. <laughs> um, so, yeah, even though I think even though we're try- we, we put on that brave face and just kind of keep going or just suck it up or whatever, I don't think that in the long term that is actually healing and I don't think it's it, it's serving us in the long term and it's not sustainable you can't keep it going like that forever no I definitely agree but could there be a kind of on the other side of it I really feel what you're saying about just kind of getting those emotions out and recognizing those emotions but could there be a point where you can dwell in those emotions too long and then that becomes again unhelpful for yes. resilience because you can't actually move on or you know is there, a, yeah. is there an optimum time of kind of <laughs> <laughs> like okay yeah some I've had some really bad news I'm gonna have a day like this is literally what I do I'll have a day sulking and moaning and then I'll and then I'll go forward I'll plan some action <laughs> yeah I, I think that's so interesting that you say that as well because yes and you know I am definitely guilty of that where I just sit and throw myself this great pity party and it goes <laughs> on forever right um and then we'd like bluff ourselves and just saying no 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 I'm just in touch with my emotions and I'm just letting myself feel the emotions but Jamie told like me to be a child <laughs> yeah <laughs> just let my inner just healing my inner child but then you know it's been like four weeks four months and you're still there um yeah so I I, I like to kind of think of it as you know, you acknowledge what's going on, but it's from that acknowledging that you can then take that next step. So it's not, it's, say we're acknowledging where we are and that's kind of ground zero where we are. We were like, okay, you know, I am feeling really upset by this thing. I'm feeling, um, I'm feeling injustice. I'm feeling angry, whatever it is. And once we acknowledge that, then we, we, at that point you're making a decision whether you want to let that feeling dictate the rest of whatever and drag you down or do you then say okay I'm going to reach for a better feeling thought or or a better feeling or a better thought at this point um but I think we can't we can't make that decision to choose whether to let that feeling pull us pull us down or whether to choose a a better feeling unless we acknowledge what that feeling is where that ground zero is in the first place Uh, is that making sense yeah it does I suppose like from thinking of when I've been at that ground zero I mean there's been times where it just feels hopelessness like it feels like there's never going to be a way out that this really is going to last forever so I suppose it's like I can really see how vital that point is of actually okay I'm acknowledging it but I want to feel better than this I want to move forward but that's just such a hard thing to do like can you I mean speaking from you as like as a coach or I suppose as a friend as well because we've seen it with our friends like can somebody help you switch that or there is there some way that you can switch that on because I just know that's like if you're in that feeling of hopelessness and I think you know if Jamie came to me and said come on we can turn this to your advantage I mean like I'm I'm sorry Jamie you might get a slap (laughs) no and I totally get that and you know I'm very careful to not do that you know when I'm coaching someone as well because you know you also don't want to be like this is terrible I'm right at the bottom like this is this is the bottom of everything I can't see a way up you don't want to go from you don't want to go from that 
to going, I'm totally capable of this. I am the most skilled human being I know. I am the strongest human being this side of the equator. That's unrealistic as well, right? Like, and definitely, like, my mother, bless her heart, is always saying to me, um, be grateful and say affirmations to yourself. And I'm just like, fuck off. <laughs> uh, you know, you're, you're, you're also not wanting to do that. And I think sometimes some understandings of resilience can, can flip to that unhealthy um, practice, you know, where you're like trying to go from like this complete despair and hopelessness to, oh, um, let me just recite a bunch of affirmations about I'm a beautiful, strong, capable woman or whatever, and it doesn't feel real. So I'm very wary of that. Yes, like I would, I wouldn't say that to you as a friend. I know you wouldn't. I know you wouldn't. (laughs) I was taking an extreme example. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, no. But I mean, I think there is that tendency for us to do that, right? Like, and society is all about that. Like, just be positive. That's a Mm -hmm. very, that's another big contemporary thing as well. Like, just be positive. Think positive. Um, just you know think about how strong you are think about how beautiful you are and all that and you're right at the bottom of the pit and you're like no this is not working for me yeah um so there's a thing that um Gabrielle Bernstein and I think you you're probably quite are you familiar with her work yeah, you know that but explain it for those in case they're not <laughs> yes so she um there's in her book Uh, I think it's in Super Attractor and she talks about this and she walks you through this process of choosing a better, a better feeling or a better thought. And again, that doesn't mean that you go from like complete hopelessness to like complete, everything is awesome. (laughs) Like You don't go to those extremes. Um, But she shares this scale of emotion. So you're not trying to go from zero to a hundred. You're just trying to reach for the next thought that feels slightly better um, or is a neutral thought, for example. So you're not just spinning into, you know, overdrive either way. So if you are feeling, for example, like complete hopelessness, it's to reach for the next feeling to say, okay, um, at least I have a friend or a family who I can talk to about this. Let me lean on that first. And so you're going from hopelessness to just like reaching for a bit of help, for example, Um, or thinking of, you know, instead of thinking this is the only way that it's ever going to be, it's to reach for perhaps another possibility. Like, okay, here's one tiny step or one thing I can think that will bring me into another in, in another direction. So you're not trying to solve the, the thing overnight. You're just trying to reach for something that feels slightly better. Um, so, okay, let me give you a working example. And I think maybe this is something that you can relate to as well, like in terms of bodies and, you know, you've dealt with body issues, right. And Ill- illnesses, um, injuries and that kind of thing so yeah I've been struggling with uh leg injuries and knee injuries for like 15 years now or something and it's very tempting to just be like oh this is hopeless I'm gonna I can't I'm never going to be able to exercise the way I did um I'm gonna have to live with this pain forever it's horrible um and it's 
you know, that can that can go down a very dark path, right? Then you're just sitting there curled up in a corner feeling terribly sorry for yourself. Um, but it's also not to go to the extreme of saying, I am a strong, beautiful body and my body can do anything. Like that feels unrealistic to me because no, my body can't do anything. I don't feel strong. I don't feel beautiful right now. But it's to just maybe reach for the the next thought that it's like, okay, I can go look for help to heal my legs. I can take one small step to do some little physio exercises at home to help me feel a little bit better. Um, Even though my legs are hurting, I can still... um, I can still enjoy a nice walk outside, even if I can't go and deadlift, I don't know, 60 kilos or whatever. So it's just starting with tiny increments of possibility and of feeling slightly better and moving up from there. Oh, that's so helpful. I mean, particularly as I'm the same dealing with injury at the moment. I, I One thing that I, like in those kind of that self-talk that you're talking about, I mean, you didn't bring this up, but it's it came to my mind because I find this really unhelpful for myself. Is that kind of, um, well, I haven't got it the worst as somebody with a worst injury. Because for me, like it feels, well, okay, now I still feel bad about my injury, but now I feel guilty for moaning about it because yes, there is, <laughs> there is somebody who doesn't, I like can't get outside or has had to have their leg amputated and I can still use mine to some degree. So is there any way when that could be a helpful self-talk of I haven't got it worse? You know, there's always somebody um, that's in a worse place. Or is that just kind of don't you don't need to go there and don't worry about that sort of comparison? Yeah, I mean, my mom is my mom loves to to say that. She's always like, well, you know, at least you have your legs. And like, you know, it, other people have, have it so much worse. Than you. <laughs> if you're going to compare, compare to all the people who are worse off than you. Um, so I like to take a slightly different uh, approach to that so instead of kind of comparing down because yeah there's that tendency then to be like <laughs> not only do you now feel bad you feel bad about feeling bad oh, right yeah, absolutely. <laughs> how dare how dare I feel bad um and I guess you know so this is also part of like reaching for a, a slightly better feeling thought is to um, I know this is this is going to sound super cliched, but bear with me. Um, and that is just to find something that you are glad for, um, and that can be part of reaching for the for, for the next better thought, I guess. Um, so this is very much about gratitude practice, right? This whole thing of just being grateful for where you are. And that's another thing that my mother is always like, oh, you're not being grateful. Think of all the wonderful things in your life and all this. And sometimes you you, you don't feel grateful, right? Sometimes you just want to throw everything out and you're like, oh, my life is terrible. I'm going to go to the garden and eat worms or whatever. <laughs> um, and I feel like gratitude can feel like a very big thing. Like I, I don't feel grateful for this, right? I don't feel grateful for anything right now. Um, so I kind of like to scale it back a little bit and say, you know, what am I glad for? What am I relieved about? Um, so yeah, you know, I've got this terrible injury and I never know whether I'm going to wake up with pain or not. 
But I'm really glad that I still have access to a nice gym and that I can go and even just do 20 minutes of walking. Um, I'm glad that I live in a place where it's safe, that I can just go for a walk around my neighborhood. And I'm glad for that. And sometimes just being glad for like the small things will then help to lift you out of that so that you're then able to feel gratitude for the bigger things and the bigger things. And it kind of adds up. Um, again, it's not to go from like feeling hopeless to feeling grateful for everything in my <laughs> life. And, <laughs> um, and I'm saying this a lot because I, I guess it's to convince myself, if nothing else, like I have a, I have a tendency to go from one extreme to the, to try to get to the next as well. And that's usually counterproductive and not very helpful. And, and this is, this goes back to what I was saying about, you know, letting yourself be in that messiness and recognize that messiness and then work from there and choose that next step from that ground zero. Um, no matter how small that those increments are. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, when we're doing that, I mean, I think it's absolutely brilliant advice and definitely I'm going to be taking it that kind of not getting back to the extreme straight away, but just taking those next steps. And when we're doing that, that practice, does that lead to us building more resilience is that going to really help us in the future are we going to be able to switch quicker to those strategies um or can it just be completely random i i do think it makes us more resilient i think that practice um you know like i said before we that there is sometimes this mistaken view that like resilience is like a destination right like we mm. want to get from here to resilient but I think that practice of being okay with things not being perfect and then just taking one teeny tiny step at a time, that process is building resilience, if that makes sense. Um, and I do think it gets easier. I mean, <laughs> I'm 40 years old and I'm still, I'm still learning it, but I do think <laughs> the more you do it, the more, um, the the quicker the time is between you sitting in that pit of hopelessness and being able to take that next step. So I, you know, I used to sit in that pit and have throw myself grand pity parties for say a whole week. And then now maybe it's just like a day because I get quicker at being able to recognize where I am. And, you know, that process of like, taking that next step comes a bit more quickly. Um, and I think that in itself, like <laughs> shortening that response time is in itself a building of resilience. I can also see it building other things. For me, like I just get, it builds like that self-confidence, that self-awareness, that self-acceptance. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's great for everything I can see rather than just, just resilience it's almost like resilience you can't really stand alone in terms of that practice can you yeah and I think yeah I think you absolutely hit it on the head there like resilience I think to truly be resilient is to be all those other things that you just said right like self-aware and confident and yeah all of that and can I'm just kind of going back to a word that I used uh, in terms of practice like so one thing that I was thinking when you were talking about your pity parties um, was like, 
ultra marathons. And I'm sure there's many other examples in other people's lives. But for me, it's almost like when I was running 100 miles, at some point, you're going to have those low moments, it's going to hurt. And you probably want to kind of have a little sob and wish that your mum could come and pick you up and bring, yeah. you, bring you some home cut food or something. And, you know, there was, there was times where I felt a bit like that. And then you're just like, right, well, at some point you're going to have to dig in, find a way to just finish what you started. And it's a really safe way of doing that. You know, like, no, there's nothing really in danger. I mean, maybe a bit of pride because if I had to not finish a race. But, you know, I was never in danger. It was never going to affect my life very negatively. I'm literally just running along a path or running. Mm-hmm. And and I feel like I've I got some strategies from that from ultramarathons about that's kind of self-talk like almost I suppose in a similar way that you were talking about getting to the next step it's like okay well don't think I've got 50 miles to go I've just got a few miles till the next checkpoint or next see this road crossing or I can next do something and it just seems like a very safe way to practice that like what we've been talking about those resilience and I'm sure there's other ways as well but is that something that you can actually almost do like flex your muscles like going to the gym could we put ourselves into situations whether it's agreeing to a new hobby or a new speaking in front of people or something that pushes us a little bit but isn't necessarily got high risk consequences is that something we can do (laughs) yeah I get yeah I see what you're saying um Or do I just have to wait until my life falls apart before I can practice my resilience? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love this question. Um, I think, oh my goodness. I, you know, I always believe in like divine timing and that there's no such thing as coincidence. And I think this is a, (laughs) this is a coaching question for myself, you know, because I am someone who is very resistant to change. Like I'm, I love staying in my comfort zone. You know, I, um, I don't, I'm quite change averse actually, but yeah, I think, um, and there's so much that's said around this, right? Like the rest of your life is just beyond your comfort zone. And there's lots of memes around this kind of thing. Um, and yeah, I do think, I, I definitely think there is lots of wisdom in that, you know, like pushing yourself just that little bit more, um, and I, I guess this is also part of what I've been saying where you're, you know, you're just taking the next tiny step. Um, yeah, I think it's, there's a, there's a difference between, um, you know, forcing yourself to a point where it's not, and, and there has been, sorry, I'm, I'm just trying to put my thoughts together around this as to how to express it. Like there's this, I, I was reading something recently, which talks about like that optimal level of stress where you are um, feeling challenged and motivated. Um, and there's just enough stress for you to, to want to, to want to keep going. Um, so there's that optimal level, but then there's, there's that step after that where it's too much stress that it becomes almost traumatic to the body and to the mind. So, yeah, I think we, I don't know where that line is exactly. And that obviously that's going to vary tremendously from one person to the next. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I don't a hundred percent agree with a lot of what, you know, self-help gurus and coaches say about like, you have to push beyond your comfort zone. You have to, you have to, because I think sometimes that can be um, 
an unrealistic kind of pressure as well that we put on ourselves. Um, and that's part of what I've been saying about this, this kind of modern tendency to, to just do it. No, no, no gain without pain. And this kind of thing of like, you know, you can't get results unless you really kind of suffer for it. Um, but I guess, you know, in terms of a sports analogy, you know, for example, there's a huge difference between adding, you know, five pounds to a weight and trying to push yourself to hit a new personal record or do an extra rep or something within the gym just to kind of like really stretch your muscles. There's a difference between doing that and pushing yourself to the point where you're like, you're making yourself throw up. And I'm sure you've come across athletes like that who are like, oh, the workout is not worthy unless I'm like throwing up in the corner and about to faint and this kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I think it's about finding that sweet spot where you're feeling challenged and almost that, that is, that self-generates a kind of motivation to, you know, see what you're capable of. And, and then the other, the other side to that, where you're like pushing yourself to a point where it's, it's, it's actually counterproductive and it's not in service of your growth anymore. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I think also like one of the phrases that came to me when you were talking as well was that do something each day that scares you and like my nervous system would be shot if I tried to do that yeah and also like what am I gonna fit in like no some days I really just want to clean my house and listen to some podcasts and that's that (laughs) yeah and that's that's good I think that's necessary too and I think part of modern society is sometimes doing the quiet nice things of cleaning your house and listening to a podcast is more challenging than doing hard work. It's such a topsy-turvy world now, but, you know, I work with PhD students and the challenge is not to get them to do the work. The challenge is to get them to rest. (laughs) I I work as a running coach and that's very similar for a lot of my athletes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And sometimes the resilience is in like letting yourself be okay with not pushing yourself all the time as well oh, wow right? that you put yeah I hadn't I would never have defined that as resilience but I guess it's that kind of going back to your your first definition it's that kind of sitting with the messiness but it's also sitting with whatever comes up when you're not doing something I guess yeah yeah and sitting with um being okay with what it is that your body and mind actually needs at that moment even if it's if that feels uncomfortable, right? Because we're so socialized to thinking like you're not a worthy being unless you're doing and producing and checking your emails every half an hour or whatever. Uh, But sometimes what your body actually needs is rest. (laughs) And as an athlete, I'm sure you completely understand that. Like so much happens within that rest and it's letting yourself be okay with that as well. Mm. And just going, uh, you mentioned about your work there. So who predominantly are your coaching clients um, in your job? Is it is it PhD students? Yeah, so I've kind of moved in and out. Um, I started with coaching PhD students and then I expanded to everybody else. Um, <laughs> and then now I'm going back to PhD students as well. So, yeah, I mean, I call myself a PhD coach, but I I don't, really just coach on the PhD I coach on 
on the, the all the other messy things that are happening in a PhD researcher's life that then affects their their work and their PhD. So I kind of like to think of it as PhD life coaching because it's not just coaching on the PhD, but yeah. about coaching around all the other bits of their life that impact their PhD. And just going back to your PhD and your experience, I mean, where did resilience fit in there? <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay, so this is a whole story. <laughs> I didn't know if you wanted um, to go into that. So I'll just leave it as to, to how much you want to go into that. I guess that would be a whole other podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, it could be. I'll just try and keep it really short. So, okay, um, long story short, I had a brilliant time. I loved it. All four years of my PhD were incredibly supported, really joyful. I loved it. It was everything that I dreamed a PhD would be. I loved being back in academia. Um, and then I went into my VIVA, which is the oral examination. That's like the one main examination for PhDs. Um, and it totally bombed the examiners. Everything that my PhD supervisors and everything that I loved about my PhD just didn't sit right with the examiners and they basically had wanted me to do the re research in a completely different way than I'd done it they'd wanted it done a particular way in their way um so then yeah that was a that was a big year when I had to re revise the PhD work through a whole set of revisions and corrections I was given a year to do that to revise it and resubmit. Um, and that was a, that was a big year that tested my resilience. You know, there was a lot of, a lot of moments where I was like, I don't think I can do this. I think I'll just give it up and just not, not follow through. Um, and how did, and, yeah, how did you, that was, how did you flick that switch? Like in those moments where you were going to give it up, what changed or what happened so that, I mean, ultimately you didn't. Yeah. So actually what it is, I did actually use what, what I've been, that method that I've been talking about. I just did tiny little increments. I sat in a mess for a long time. Um, I was given a year to do the corrections and I didn't start doing the corrections until six months in. So it was, that was a six month long pity party of just like sitting there feeling really sorry for myself. Well, I'm like, just sitting there being like, I can't do anything. I'm useless. I am, you know, it's not just imposter syndrome. I am an actual imposter and they found me out and all the stories. Um, but actually by sitting in that and kind of being in that, the place that I absolutely didn't want to be in, you know, it was everything that was com the complete opposite to, to my PhD experience, right? That, that one year feeling like I couldn't do it at all. Actually. Um, so how I actually did the corrections was that I, I didn't, I didn't try to go from zero to hundred. I didn't try and just be like, I'm going to do it all. Um, I started off literally by just working half an hour every day, um, just tiny, tiny little increments. Um, yeah, just let me just see how I feel in the next 10 minutes. It was really, it was almost breaking it down to that level. Like, let me just get through the next half an hour. Let me just get through the next 10 minutes. 
uh, let me just do, you know, I'll just write one paragraph today. <laughs> I'll just read one thing today. You know, it sounds exactly so, like my ultra marathons. I'll just, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking of actually, when you just said that, let me just get to the next thing. Um, let me just reach for a slightly better thought about my PhD, you know? Um, and it took a long time and yeah, actually I, I would start by saying, okay, you know, the examiners didn't like my PhD, but my supervisors loved it. That was like me reaching for a better feeling thought. Like, and you know, my supervisors liked my work and I respect my supervisors. So it's not all bad or, you know, um, even though the final thesis is not what I want it to be, I've I've enjoyed four years of doing research that's really important to me. And whatever it is, nobody can take that four years away from me. So it was every day just trying to find like one tiny thing to feel better about. Um, or, you know, okay, despite all this, I've managed to make some really good research friends and have had really good research conversations that... I can then take into other work that I want to do. Um, and by thinking in those tiny, tiny increments, I finally got to a point where actually, um, and I was just thinking about this recently, by the examiners not agreeing with the way I'd done things and by them not really liking what I'd done and because of such a horrible viva experience. It's actually kind of led me to recognizing the value of my own work and recognizing my own, I've been like forced through this process of looking for, you know, the slightly better thoughts and the slightly better feelings. I've kind of been like quote unquote forced to really recognize my own strengths and my own values, you know, cause it was like, I was finding, finding myself off against the wall and thinking, you know, either the examiners are right and I'm completely useless and, like, they're the only ones whose opinion counts, or I can, like, look at everything else that has gone right for me and everything else that I've done well and learn to recognize that, no, actually, like, I am I'm pretty good where I am, actually. Um, so, yeah, I think now more than ever like I look back and I think no actually my work was really good I am a really capable researcher I can do really good work um I've had lots of people recognize my work and those two examiners that they are they are human beings as well and they're messy and they have their own they're coming with their own baggage and their own perspectives and whatever um like so I think I have even more like self-belief and self-confidence now than if the examiners had been like oh this is wonderful this is great we'll pass you straight away oh wow that's really yeah nice. but I guessing when you were in that six months um straight after you know in your pity party if I mean would it have just seemed ridiculous for you to be saying that like actually this is going to make you stronger or and you're going to become a PhD coach because of this like was that just completely alien if you'd have said that to yeah and people have said this to me you know um a lot of friends um healers and coaches have said to me 
this is going to help. They were like, you're not going to see this now, but this is going to help you even more. Like this is going to make your work in the future even more powerful. And I was like, what? <laughs> At that time I was like, no, but I can't do anything. I'm useless. You know, I was right there in the hopelessness and the despair and all that. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I think that is definitely what has helped me. Um, it's having enjoyed like, or experience, I guess, both ends of the spectrum, like the complete fulfillment and joy and love of doing research to going to this place where I'm like, I hate everything and I can't do this. Um, I think that's given me a much better understanding of the people that I now work with, you know, like I, I understand that the that the research experience can be really joyful, but I also understand how it can be completely demoralizing and completely how it can completely batter you and yeah um, make you feel small. And did you get any help in that process? I mean, I'm, it was we're kind of talking over years, wasn't it? Since how long ago was that? I mean, did you yeah. get any help through that year when you were rewriting and resubmitting things? Or was yeah, it- yeah, I did. I mean, I was working closely with my supervisor, so she was walking me through it all. Um, and she was really good, actually, about kind of keeping me on track. And, and this is another big thing, I think, and another big part of resilience is finding the people who are who are kind of not going to let you sit in that pity party for too long, right? Like people who are who are going to uplift you and who see what it is that you are capable of. Um, and that helps you to kind of go up, go along the resilience path, you know, the, the, the they're holding your hand, giving you a leg up as you as you kind of try and struggle your way back up. Um, and I remember having a conversation with my supervisor and I was like, I was, I was starting to do the thing of like, oh, I just can't do it. And I was like starting to cry. And she was like, nope, we're not, we're not going there. This is good work. You have to recognize that you are doing good work and you have worked really hard and your examiners are going to, to recognize that you have worked hard on the corrections. I can see that you've worked hard on the corrections. Don't even, we're not even going to entertain those thoughts, <laughs> you know? So she was sort of, I guess, pushing me forward in that sense. And it's so important, I think, to surround yourself with the people who are going to help you get that movement and that progress on your resilience journey um, rather than to surround yourself with people who are going to be like, oh, yeah, everything is terrible, isn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and Yeah, I would give it up. That's a- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see that. And um, and like before your PhD, would you have described yourself as a resilient person? And do you feel more resilient now? Or are you still thinking, well, actually, I don't know, like, we're all just muddling along, and maybe I'm not resilient? <laughs> or is that just me? I, um, I think I'm definitely more willing to, to sit with the messiness. And I guess that's why I talk about this so much. Like, the past me... Is was very much a perfectionist. You know, I didn't like, if anything went wrong, I would just like soldier on. I would just um, gloss over it and try and make everything like picture perfect again and just keep going, keep going. Um, whereas now I'm like, okay, this feels horrible. Like let's sit with the horribleness and try and be curious about it. Like what is the horribleness trying to tell me what, what is it that I actually need to work through and just 
being willing to sit with that gritty um imperfect that, isn't it it's like imperfection yeah that you really need to yeah decide. sit with the imperfection and and move through that I think you need this is kind of paradoxical but like you need resilience to be able to sit with and move through that discomfort and that mess and in turn that makes you more resilient as well but by saying that I mean surely just to be here today like all humans are resilient to some level like do you feel like we can quantify and go yeah they're really resilient or oh no they've got bad resilience like can we judge it in that way oh I don't know if we can quantify it (laughs) It's that thing of like, you never know what someone's going through, right? Yeah. So just Um, because they're having a pity party for a certain amount of time over one thing, I guess you can't judge that without knowing, well, you can't judge it full stop, but also it's just having that background of what, what somebody has been through their whole life. Yeah. Or like what I found really interesting was like, there was a point in my PhD, like, even though I loved it so much, there were challenges. I mean, there was one year where I had, two bereavements of very close friends and uh, like three months of horrible health problems. Um, in fact, that was the year that we went on a retreat together. And I was, mm. I don't know if you remember, but I was struggling with lots of health issues around that time. Um, and then around that time I met somebody who has, so this was, this was maybe in 2017, 2018. Um, and I've just met up with her again recently, a few weeks ago. And she said, oh, you know, when I met you at that time, I just thought, what a badass. This woman has got it all together. She's so awesome. This is who I want to be. And I was like, really? Because at that time I was struggling, you know, and that was a really tough time for me. So, yeah, it's hard to tell, isn't it? When someone looks like they've got everything together and they look like they're really resilient. Um we never know like what kind of stuff, what stuff's going on behind the scenes and what they're really kind of working towards or not working towards. I mean, maybe that was me trying to gloss it over and pretending that it was, everything was fine instead of kind of, instead of allowing myself to really properly grieve and deal with the health issues. Um, Yeah. I think it's hard to tell really whether someone's being, truly resilient (laughs) or if they're faking it until they make it it sounds like we've both been fakers in the past (laughs) I mean I think all of us are at some uh, to some extent aren't we and I think at the same like to some extent we're all kind of faking it till we're making it and at the same time all of us are also dealing with some sort of mess at some level Absolutely. And I guess we all had that kind of collective mess of the pandemic, which surely must have. Yeah. I mean, how I was running out of time, but I brought it up now. So how did that I mean, just on a professional level, I'm guessing a lot of PhD students had a lot of disruptions and that must have been really hard to deal with. But also personally for you, like how was the pandemic and was that testing in other ways? Yeah, so I was working through that year of PhD corrections alongside (laughs) the first year of the pandemic you're a badass Jamie (laughs) (laughs) I mean that's why I really let myself I think just sit in that pity party for six months because it was like 
suddenly I was cut off from all forms mm-hmm. of support as well, like physical, you know. You couldn't even go to the gym or anything, could we? Yeah, yeah. You couldn't even, and there was a time where like, you know, we were only allowed to go out for a walk for like an hour or something, right? Um, and it was hard as well because then there was no separation between my work life and my home life. I think everyone struggled with that, right? Like no clear boundaries anymore. Like I could, there was no distinction between when, my normal life began and you know because my corrections my 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 desk is in my living room because I just mm-hmm. I live in a one-bed apartment so I couldn't get away from it like wherever I went I could see my laptop I could see my books or whatever um so yeah that was hard I think um and I guess this this opens up a whole other thing, but this you know boundaries I think are also really important in, in in developing resilience. And I think for that that shift of having to move move from having an office space to working from home, I think that affected everyone. Like not having that those boundaries between your work life and the rest of your life as well, and having one bleed into another was very uncomfortable. I think for a lot of people and quite a challenge. Mm. Yeah, and for your students or the PhD um, coaching clients that you had, I'm guessing that was quite tough for them as well. Similar. Yeah, and and the loneliness as well. I think for sure, um, PhDs are quite lonely journeys anyway because you know a lot of the work is done on your own. Um, but you know, pre-pandemic, people still had access to going onto campus or being in libraries or you know working with colleagues in their department or whatever. And then suddenly, like, there was none of that. You're just, you're doing your PhD on your own, mentally and emotionally and physically. Like, you don't even have access to, like, coffee breaks with your friends. So that was hard. Um, But again, it was like trying to find small ways of dealing with that. Like, yeah, you know, you're not going to have that same interaction as before, but, like, what little Zoom things can you join? How can you call on existing networks to support you? Um, yeah, so always, always, a, that's my thing now. Like, you know, if you can't do everything, what's, what one small thing can you do each day that will help you? Oh, that's definitely my takeaway from our conversation. And um, yeah, fantastic to have that little scale and and not feel the pressure of having to go from zero to a hundred. I mean, like seeing it all as this speedometer now when I'm on my yeah. <laughs> having my little pity party. And and also, there's one last thing that kind of came up when you were just talking then about the networks and things. For me, when I've been in that pity party, particularly when I had like chronic illness and was really felt alone, was connection like that was the one little spark that would get me out and I'm not talking about like having a doctor that was going to fix me or a friend with all the answers it was literally any connection and it just feels like that's been a little theme that you've brought up with um with get you know just making that start and so I think that might be something that I take away from this as well that actually what I was feeling with those sparks of connection was really just that little nudge that feeling better feeling more connected and less lonely yeah and having the right people hold that space for you to take that one little step you know the the people who are going to be encouraging of you taking that step and who are not going to like who you know are not going to judge you and rush you 
to go from zero to a hundred. But you know, sometimes depending on who your who those sparks are and who those connections are, um, you know, you want to be careful of not surrounding yourself with people who are gonna pressure you or conversely who are going to sit there and like join your pity party and then you know there's that thing as well where people sit around and like it becomes like the suffering what I call like the suffering olympics like who's got it worse (laughs) (laughs) um but like finding people who are gonna like see your see how see your progression and see your ability to progress and help you to to make those tiny steps to be more of you rather than to make yourself shrink or to yeah it's that thing that Gabrielle Bernstein says you know it's you're either acting from fear or you're acting from love and it's I think it's the same thing with our the connections that we make are they kind of helping you to to act more from love and giving you that love or are they generating more fear for you um and obviously one's going to help you to develop that resilience more than the other, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think I can guess which one you're saying. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, amazing, Jamie. Jamie, and if we want to connect with you and um, look at your work as the messy coach, what's the best way to follow you? Um, okay, so you've got my website, which is jamiepay.com, and I'm happy to share the links with you. Um, or you can find me on Instagram or Twitter. And my handle is very messy, Jamie. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love the lack of perfectionism and just embracing messiness as your ethos. Fantastic. Yes. And thank you so much for our conversation today. I've really enjoyed it and really got some, some nuggets to take away as well. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me here to talk about messiness (laughs) all day long. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much, Jamie. Thank you for listening to the Resilience Rising podcast. If you have enjoyed this episode, please do help people find us by hitting subscribe, leaving a review or sharing us with others. Thank you so much and see you next time on the Resilience Rising podcast.